This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we will examine the arguments surrounding who bought Joseph from his brothers. Doesn't seem like there should be an argument about that. Brent, does it? I, yeah, I, I don't know. Like Maybe, maybe uh, a little listener exercise would be to stop for a moment and think, do you know who bought him? And if you think you know, are you sure? Right. Yeah, we feel, and we didn't do this the first go around back in 2016. We, I remember diving into it in uh, in the middle of our class discussion back when I was doing classes on the Palouse. I think after we recorded the episode, I even discovered more and more about what the rabbinical conversation was, and so we went there in discussion group, but we didn't actually put it in the podcast at all. So, what a great opportunity with our character studies to be able to circle back around now a few years later and dive a little deeper. Yep. Uh, Since then, I can recommend some great sources that have come out in between our episode and uh, and now. I remember hearing this material in a lecture from uh, Rabbi Foreman of all, no surprise there, but then he ended up putting it together in some of his written material. And so uh, one of the first places I ran into it, which I still think is just a, an unbelievably well-packaged um, presentation, is the fourth part of his book, The Exodus You Almost Passed Over. So we'll put that in the show notes. We've recommended it before, but we'll link it there again. But The Exodus You Almost Passed Over by Rabbi David Foreman, um, mainly the first three parts of that book, the first 75% or more of that book really just uh, deals with the exodus. Um, but it's all working towards, as every Foreman book does, some climactic resolution ending at the end that you don't even see coming. And it's part four of the book. And I won't give away any spoilers, except in our podcast today. Um, but he does just a great presentation of the life of Joseph. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what does the life of Joseph have to do with part four of the Exodus? And all I have to say is uh, get the book and, and find out for yourself. But he also did... Uh, maybe another presentation of the same material. There's a ton of overlap, um, but he did it again in his uh, Genesis Parsha companion. Uh, instead of packaging it with the uh, Exodus story, he did it through his journey through Genesis, which maybe in a lot of cases makes even more sense, but um, just really well done. So I recommend both those, the Exodus you almost passed over and uh, Genesis, the Parsha companion. Um, just a fantastic treatment. I'm going to try not to just deliberately plagiarize what you'll find there. He's making all kinds of beautiful connections, guys. Like, like if you get into that book, like he's going to be making connections to like David and Jonathan and calling back to Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau, like so many things I'm not doing. So the last thing I'm going to do is just go through his presentation, but it is without a doubt the inspiration for what we're going to talk about here. It's my source it's my source material for our conversation today. So there you go. I would say without further ado, uh, let's get into this conversation, Brent Billings, this idea of who sold Joseph to the Egyptians. Now, our knee-jerk reaction seems to be like, why is this even a question? The answer is super easy. What's the easy answer, Brent? Who sold Joseph? Yeah, who sold Joseph to the Egyptians? Uh, the brothers as a group, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. The brothers sold Joseph to Egypt. Like, uh, haven't I even read that in the text? Like, isn't that even in there? Like, the the brothers sold Joe, And yet, there's this larger rabbinical conversation that swirled about the content of Genesis 
37. And in fact, I, I would I would say before we even get there, Brent, there are places in the scripture that do reference the idea of the brothers selling Joseph to Egypt. So we're also going to have to circle back around by the time we're done. We've got to make everything that we find in the text make sense. Everything in the text has to fit. We don't get to arbitrarily explain things away. That's what Westerners typically do. We will even call it apologetics at, <laughs> at times. Uh, but the Jewish worldview, you, you can't do that. You have to explain all the details. You have to make all the details that are found internally in the text work. That's what the Midrash does. And so part of those details that get the rabbinical conversation going is a passage that's later in the story. It, it's a, Let's go to a verse here, Genesis 42, 21. This is going to be uh, – the context here is the brothers – have gone to Egypt to get food, and Joseph has planted a he, – he's had the officials plant a, a silver cup in one of, the, one of the luggage bags, one of the knapsacks of one of the brothers, and um, they, they get caught. They've been set up and framed, and they get caught, and they are – they basically are seeing this as justice, like God is delivering justice. He's getting that – he's paying them back for what they did to Joseph. And yet, uh, let's hear what they say as they, they reflect on this. Let's hear what they say about what they did. What is it that they did to Joseph? Brent, give us 42, verse 21. And they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Right. So that's why, according to them, they're experiencing this situation is because – and what is the thing they say they've done wrong there, Brent? What is it they say they've done wrong? Uh, that they didn't listen. They didn't listen to – They didn't hear his cry. Yeah. They did, they did not hear the cry, which is tasty for some of our other session one content, but they didn't hear his cry, and so God is now punishing them uh, because of that. And what is it that seems wrong about that to you, Brent? Is there anything that seems wrong about that? Uh, well, I mean, typically you would look out for your brothers. Sure. Is there anything else about... Uh, so so here's their... You know what we did wrong? We didn't listen to our brothers cry. Does it seem like they're... So I guess they say we saw how distressed he was. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else that seems odd about that? If you were standing there and you were listening to it and you would be like, hey... Uh, wait a minute. I, I feel like there's more to the story. Uh, I'll read you. I'll read you what Foreman says in his book. Here's a couple paragraphs. The brothers seem to see a connection between what they did years ago and what is happening to them now. They stand before the Egyptian official, beseeching him for help. Not only does he turn a deaf ear to their cries, he accuses them of being spies. Why would he do that? Well, years ago they de- they had deemed someone a spy their brother Joseph, who had brought back bad reports about them to their father. And when that someone beseeched them for help, when Joseph called out to them from that pit, they ignored his anguished cries and obvious distress. Now the tables have turned. It seems clear to them that the hand of heaven is repaying them, measure for measure, for their own actions. But something doesn't quite add up. If the brothers consider themselves guilty for their actions toward Joseph long ago, haven't they committed a more grievous crime against him? one that inexplicably they seem to be overlooking. Worse than ignoring Joseph's cries from the pit would be the fact that they sold him into slavery, wouldn't you say? Why don't they hold themselves culpable for that? 
In other words, if the brothers are in a mind to see the hand of heaven at work in their predicament, why not take this argument to its logical conclusion, that they are being punished by heaven for selling Joseph into slavery? Why would their present plight be a measure-for-measure punishment for their one-time indifference to Joseph, please, rather than for the more egregious crime of selling him into slavery? So this concept of they see this as God's righteous judgment, and yet the way they explain it is we didn't hear his cry when he was in the pit. They don't say anything about how they actually entered into a premeditated transaction to sell him to Egypt. And so the rabbi said, well, obviously, they must not have seen what they did. The brothers don't, the brothers don't realize they did sell him to Egypt. Whatever happened here, however we make the details of the story work, they don't, they don't know that that part of the story happened. And so you say, well, my goodness, how, how could that even be possible if we go back to the story? And, and so the rabbis had this, um, they, they had this uh, different way of, of explaining. Let's go back and actually read. Let's go back to Genesis 37 just to remind ourselves and look at the text here, Brent. And then we'll unpack what the rabbis argued about as we, as we kind of walk through it. Yeah, talk about the lullaby effect. I'm completely reading into that Genesis 42 portion, you know, all of the details that I know from other things, but, but that's not actually what it says there. That's super interesting. Yeah. Right. Yep. Okay. So we're jumping back to yeah 37. Okay. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. All right, let's we'll so pause here. Their first plan, the, the very first knee-jerk plan they have, plan A, impulsive plan A, is what, Brent? Kill him and throw him into a well. Kill him and throw him into a well. All right, that's their first plan. Okay, go ahead. Uh, when Reuven heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Rovain said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Okay, so now we're told that Reuben doesn't want to have this... Um, uh, he doesn't like this idea of kill. He's the, he's the firstborn. He's the Bechor, if we remember that conversation. He doesn't want to have this brother be killed. So he has, we're told by the narrator here, he has this plan, like, if I can just keep them from not killing him, I'll, I'll come back later, I'll rescue him, I'll pull him out of the pit. Let's just, so he kind of like, but he doesn't want to stand up against the brothers directly, so he, ah, let's not kill him, that won't do us any good, let's just throw him into the pit here, and and then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll I'll come back later, and I'll get him, okay, and, and everything will be okay, all right? Yeah, and obviously the quotation marks are not in the passage, but I think the the text is pretty clear the the idea of rescuing him and taking him back to the father was not said out loud to the other brothers. Right, absolutely, right. So when Yosef came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Yehuda said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. 
his brothers agreed. All right. So now the plan, plan A has changed. Judah sees an opportunity here to change plan A into something more beneficial for them. So Judah comes up with this idea. Okay, we haven't killed him. We threw him into this cistern. And, and, and you know, Reuben was, and we'll just leave him to die, but he knew he was going to come get him. But Ru- Judah says, why don't we turn this into some profit? We'll, we'll sell him to the Ishmaelites. Okay. That is pretty weird that Yehuda says that. What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Well, hadn't they already abandoned that plan based on what Reuven said? Um, well, uh, uh, you know, it's a great question. I think what Reuben has insinuated to the brothers is that we're going to throw him in the cistern and, and let him be. We're going to leave him in the wilderness. He'll probably die, but at least we won't have the guilt of his dying on our hands. We're not going to physically kill him. We're just going to throw him into the cistern here on the wilderness, and, and we'll kill him that way, I guess you could say. But we'll, we'll let the circumstances, we'll let God have his way with him. We'll let, we'll let the divine kill him. That would be the insinuation that I hear in that is, rather than us kill him with our bare hands, us being directly responsible, let's just be indirectly responsible. Let's just chuck him in a cistern, and he knows... He's going to come back, you know, under the cover of nightfall, rescue the brother, keep him from dying, those kind of things. So I think the brothers, I think Judah still thinks Joseph ends up dead at the end of this story, and he's re-contemplating plan A, going, well, that doesn't serve me any if I just leave him out here in the wilderness. Let's actually make some profit off of this. Yeah. Uh, Well, yeah, and there's more details I want to pull out here, but i got to keep reading to get there. So uh, let me continue. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Yosef out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuven returned to the cistern and saw that Yosef was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Okay, so now we have all kinds of interesting details. First of all, read me the beginning phrase of verse 29 again, Brent. When Reuven returned to the cistern. Okay, now Reuben's returned, which raises the question of what? Brent? He wasn't there. He wasn't there. Like, where was Reuben, right? Uh, well, I'm going to leave some of the other observations here for just a moment. Let's go ahead and finish the passage out, and, and, and then we'll try to put some of these details together with the rabbinical conversation. Then they got Yosef's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Yosef has surely been torn to pieces. Then Yaakov tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Yosef in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. All right, so we got a bunch of fun details in there. Um, Foreman has this page in his book in the Genesis Parashah Companion uh, where he, he outlines what he calls what seems to be happening. He's playing this game of what seems to be happening. Uh, so he, he quotes some verses, um, like uh, verses 26 and 27. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. So Foreman says what seems to be happening is that Judah proposes selling Joseph to the Ishmaelite traders that he sees in the distance. There, and we know from the, the, the verse out of 42, when they sit down to eat, uh, how close are they to the pit? How, where are they at in physical proximity to the, to, to the pit, to the cistern, Brent? 
They said they heard his what? When he pleaded with us for his life. So they heard his... His cry. His cry. They have to be close enough that they can hear their brother crying for deliverance. They can't be far away from the pit. They have to be close to the pit. So it seems that Judah sees the Ishmaelite traders coming in the distance. And so he says, come, let's go. We got to go talk to those Ishmaelites and sell them to the Ishmaelites. So verse 27, uh, his brothers listened to him. So what seems to be happening is that Judah's proposal is the brothers accept that proposal. Uh, verse 28, the Midianite merchants pass by. So what seems to be happening uh, is that here comes some Midianite merchants, and they drew him and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites. So meanwhile, the brothers lift Joseph out of the pit and do what they said they would do, which was sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. That's what seems to be happening. Um, and so the rabbinical conversation picked up on this little conundrum and what seems to be happening. And one of the first rabbis, there's this continual ongoing conversation about this story between uh, Rashi and Rambam and Ramban, which are three different rabbis. Uh, Rashi is the rabbinical code name for Shlomo ben Yitzhak, and Rambam is the uh, rabbinical code name for Maimonides. And then uh, Ramban is the uh, rabbinical nickname for Nachmanides. And so they're having this conversation over the ages, over the course of a couple hundred years. They're wrestling with the story and what's taking place here in the Joseph story. And the first rabbi says, okay, so what happened here? Here's my commentary. Uh, The brothers didn't realize they had sold him to Egypt. What they did was they went and they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites, who then in turn— sold him to the Midianites. Because what was the very last verse that you read, Brent? Can you can you read that very last verse of chapter 37 again? Yeah, it says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Yosef in Egypt to Potiphar. All right, so meanwhile, the Midianites... So we know that the Midianites sold Joseph to uh, Egypt, or so it seems when you read that verse. So the first rabbi said, okay, so the brothers went off. They struck a deal with the Ishmaelites. The Midianites also came by. The brothers sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites, not realizing that the not realizing that the Ishmaelites in turn sold uh, the sold Joseph to the Midianites, who ended up taking him down to Egypt. Uh, the next rabbi came along and said, "No, no, 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 no. That, that's not what happened. No, 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 that that doesn't square the text appropriately, right?" So, so what, what obviously has to happen here is they went off to talk to the Ishmaelites because remember Reuben came back. Remember, so Reuben comes back. How, how do you how do you make how do you Rabbi number one make sense of that verse? Oh, I know how Rabbi number two says they went off to make the deal with the Ishmaelites, and then the Midianites came by. And here's where the NIV is really misleading. Can you read me verse? Uh, let's see here, um, verse twenty eight. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Yosef up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Right. But the NIV arbitrarily inserts his brothers. The The Hebrew doesn't have his brothers. The Hebrew just has uh, they. It's just It would just be the expression in the English, they. So read that verse again, Brent, without his brothers. Instead, put they. So when the Midianite merchants came by... They pulled Yosef up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now, the they is unspecified, but who in the English especially, who would it, who would you feel like is the they if you just read that verse as you just did, Brent? 
It'd be the Midianites. Ah, so Rabbi number two comes along and says, here's what happened. They they ran off uh, to make a deal with the Ishmaelites. They made the deal. Meanwhile, while they're gone, the Midianites come by the cistern and they hear somebody crying out. So they pull him out of the cistern. They end up going and selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites, and they're the ones that end up taking Joseph to Egypt. And by proxy, the Midianites end up selling Joseph into Potiphar's house through the connection of the Ishmaelites. This explains why when Reuben comes back, okay, we've made this deal, they've come back, and now Reuben says, wait a minute, where is Joseph? He's no longer here. And then, of course, another rabbi comes along and says, ah, you know, you guys are both, you guys are both crazy. You, you guys are both crazy. You know what the real question is? The real question is, what did they use the 20 uh, shekels of silver to buy? <laughs> at, at which point you're like, this is the rabbinical midrash. What? What does that have to do with anything? And that rabbi says, yeah, 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 yeah. They took the 20 shekels of silver and every brother bought a shiny new pair of sandals. They bought a shiny new pair of sandals. Isn't that helpful, Brent? No. That's not what I <laughs> thought we were going with this. Uh, it's so it's so so great. You see, so you have this you have this conversation about what's happening because you have to square all these verses, right? Because it seems like at different points in the passage, each one of these parties is selling Joseph to Egypt. Right? Uh, at, at one point, it's the brothers selling Joseph to Egypt. At another point, it's the Ishmaelites. At another point, it's the Midianites. And so you got to square all that. And so the last rabbi, I believe it was Nachmanides, I believe it was Ramban that came along and said, "You know what? They, you know what's more important than the the question of who? It's what they bought with the the silver. And they bought a pair of sandals. And of course, this is a we would say a remez. It's a remez to the Book of Isaiah." Uh, because the the Hebrew word for uh, selling here, and it shows up in only a few places, it shows up in the book of Esther, surprise, surprise, it shows up in the story of Joseph, and it shows up again in, in, in Amos. It's this idea of to sell, this Hebrew word here used here, it, they sold his, it shows up in, in Amos when it says, you sell the poor for a, do you remember what the quote is, Brent? You sell the poor for a... Pair of sandals. A pair of sandals. And Nachmanides connects this to the condemnation of Amos, which actually, when you go back and you look at that passage in the context of Joseph, you go, oh my goodness, that has Joseph written all over it. So they're doing a remez to a later passage? Well, the rabbinical conversation is not the text itself. So it really wouldn't be a remez. It's when the rabbi is making commentary. He's wanting you in his commentary to hear a remez. I see. He's talking about Joseph, but he's wanting you to he's wanting you to pull to Amos because his point is, you know what's really wrong? How did the how did the brothers sell Joseph to Egypt? Well, they didn't actually do a physical transaction that sold their brother to Egypt. But what is Amos truly condemning? What's the prophecy of Amos truly condemning God's people for, Brent? Are, is, the, is the prophecy about a literal transaction, like they're literally selling the poor for pairs of sandals? Or is there something bigger and more poetic that Amos is driving at? I guess the idea that you're selling the poor to meet your own basic needs instead of taking care of others. A, a complete and utter disregard for their humanity. Like you have a complete disregard what was it that the brothers blamed themselves for in chapter 42 when they're thinking back? We didn't hear his cry. 
We, we heard his cry. We did nothing to help the oppressed. What is Amos's condemnation? You would sell the poor for a pair of sandals. That's the kind of disregard, just the flippant, you don't care about who they are. You don't even see them as human beings. You just see them as variables to be manipulated, that you would sell the poor. So, so the real sin of the brothers, the way that they, quote unquote, sold Joseph to Egypt was they simply didn't care. They didn't care. The actual transaction, well, that might have been taken. That might have taken place between Midianites or the Ishmaelites. Or the problem is, you can't really make. The, how do those details really work? Was it the Midianites who sold them to Potiphar? Was it the Ishmaelites who sold them to Potiphar? Was it the Ishmaelites through the Midianites who sold them to Potiphar? And 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 Rambans comes along and he says, no, 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 you're missing the whole point. The whole point is that they had an utter, blatant disregard for Joseph and who he was and what he needed and his plight as a marginalized person who needed deliverance and rescue. So that ends up being the 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 larger rabbinical takeaway uh from from the lesson of who sold Joseph which kind of explains a, a few things that happen Foreman has a whole section on the title of the section is why didn't Joseph write home which is an interesting question, right? Why, why didn't Joseph just, you know, send word back to his dad? Like, hey, I got sold in Egypt. Come and get me. <laughs> like, I realized I didn't have email back then, but it, it seems like he could have sent word to his father uh, about the plight that he was in and that his father would have, I mean, he's obviously his father's favorite, so his father would have come to his rescue, right? And yet he never sends word back to Jacob. And Foreman will answer that in many of his teachings all over the place, alephbeta.com, all kinds of stuff. He'll talk about, he has a teaching called Goats and Coats. Goats and Coats. Alephbeta.org, by the way. Yeah, alephbeta.org. He has this, uh, this uh, all, all kinds of different forms, videos, lectures. Uh, you'll find it in written form at times, just this idea of goats and coats. That This concept that there's one piece of the there's one piece of the story that you and I know as readers that Joseph does not know. Joseph does not know. And uh what is that piece of information? What is the one piece of the story Brent that we know about what happened when the brothers got home that Joseph would have not known about? What do the brothers do when they get home with their dad? They make his dad believe that he's dead. Right. And does Joseph know that that's happened? No. So what would Joseph's assumption be? His dad should know that he's alive and should be looking for him. And yet his dad never shows up. His dad never, he, he would assume that his dad would come fix things and yet his dad never. So what does that do to him years and years and years later in Egypt, not knowing the full backstory? That is the cliffhanger ending. We are going to end part one of Joseph, character study of Joseph, and we will come back and pick up right there where we left off for part two. I do have a few questions before we completely close out. Well, let's, well, let's ask the questions. Let's do it. Not a question in the sense that uh, we'll be able to answer it necessarily, but I wonder, so Rashi was, um, he was born in 1040. Well, okay, let me start over. So that, that verse at the end of 37, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Yosef in Egypt, uh, there's a footnote on that and it says Midianites is in the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, the Vulgate and the Syriac. But the Masoretic text in verse 36, that's the Medianites. Right. 
So the Masoretic text is, uh, I think they date that to like the 600s to 900s. Uh-huh. So shortly after that, Rashi comes along and then this conversation starts happening. And I, I wonder if they were working off of the Masoretic text, if they're thinking that there's an even a, a third group of people involved in this sale. I don't know if you ran across anything like that. Um, not necessarily. And if I understand my manuscripts correctly, I don't believe the Jewish conversation worked off the Masoretic text. I believe that's the Christian conversation that worked off the Masoretic text, which is why I could have that totally backwards. So you might be able to help me out on that, Brent. But Masoretic text is the Hebrew Aramaic text of Tanakh. Is that is that correct? Yes. What does it say? I know that we use it in our translation to, uh, or maybe it's backwards. I could have that backwards, that we don't use it in our translation. And it's actually what leads us astray and apart from what the Jews use in their in their Hebrew scriptures, uh, even today. They use a different manuscript um, formula that either includes or doesn't include the Masoretic text, and we do not. And it's what Whatever they do, we don't do. And it does lead to some, I would call them minor but significant, if that's possible, uh, discrepancies. Yeah, it, I mean, it certainly would be significant if uh, if there was a third group involved in, in the sale process, perhaps. Well, and I don't know if it's a third group, because I think in both references here, I think that's what it says when you notice that footnote. Um and both times they're mentioned, it's not a third group. It's that that group is not the Midianites. It's a Metanites. Um, so it's still it's still the same number of groups, but the identity of those groups would be different in those texts. Oh, sure. Because Midianites and Ishmaelites uh, are often, I hear Bible teachers do this all the time, talk about how similar they are and how really they were probably the same group of people. Like I remember that in apologetics classes all the time. And yet... It, it, that makes no sense because the author of Genesis would not mention them independently. The author of Genesis obviously knows how to use the term Ishmaelite and obviously knows how to use the term Midianite so or Metanite. So this can't be the same group of people. The author is using them as independent terms. Um, but I've heard Christians do that all the time. And the Masoretic text being a later set of texts. Um, at least compared to, I, I know the Septuagint would have been, you know, a thousand years earlier, um, at least. So if anything, it would be some kind of a commentary, right? Yeah. I just don't know enough about my manuscripts when it comes to the Masoretic text and how it impacts the conversation to be able to clear that one up for you. But it it is significant and I, it does have an impact. And the Septuagint, for instance, is absolutely a form of commentary. The translation itself is a form of commentary. Oh, sure, yeah. Whenever you have a later translation, you're seeing them take liberties that we typically wouldn't in our translation, but they're doing it as a form of commentary. And I'm sure it impacts uh, whichever way that that Masoretic usage goes. It impacts the understanding of, say, uh, Rashi and those rabbis that come afterwards. That's all a part of the larger conversation they're dealing with. Yeah, the I the people who understand all of these ancient manuscripts and are able to like pull stuff together and look at these tiny little fragments. It is completely mind blowing to me. So the fact that any of we can learn anything at all from this is pretty crazy, but people dedicate their lives to this and uh, you know, there might, there might be something there. I was, I was just curious if, if that would have potentially influenced their conversation at all, 
if that if they were working off of a manuscript that had a a different rendering of the group name at the end versus whatever but like i said not a question i was expecting an answer to necessarily sure and a great time to reiterate uh for us um that all we're doing is trying to connect you to a larger conversation that we're really ill-equipped to resolve. Like I was reminded of that on Twitter not too long ago, how dangerous it is when somebody in my chair starts to act like I understand the rabbinical conversation and really pass it on with authority. I, so I, I have repeated more and more and more, and I want to repeat again today, and I will keep repeating. Uh, all we're doing is tossing like little nuggets that we've found your direction, sharing them so that you can follow them, you can see them, you can learn from them. I, I, I'm trying to connect you to the sources. That's why I keep recommending things in footnotes uh, because Foreman is trained to interact with this conversation. I am not. Uh, so all I want to do is point people towards that longer conversation, that larger conversation um, with people that are because I'm not the one that understands it enough to be able to tell you exactly what it is or how. But I love finding things. And then I just want to share it with other people. I want to. I want to tell people. I want to tell other people what to look for, who to read, where to find it, so that it can impact. Because I didn't know any of this stuff. I mean, I, I we've. I mean, we've been talking about this for years on the Baymont podcast. But I, I spent years and years and years studying the Bible. Um, I had to go through all kinds of classes in Old Testament, New Testament, um, and, and all kinds of stuff to get my degree. And I wasn't taught that. Like, this is what the Jews have been talking about for centuries and centuries and centuries. That's relevant to me. That's helpful for me. And I'm still not ordained or equipped from a Jewish perspective to be the one having this conversation. But I sure love to point people towards those who are. So just remember, just remember what the Bema podcast is. Remember who we are. And maybe more importantly, remember who we're not. Uh, Brent and I are not rabbis. We're not uh, capital R authorities. We... We're we're simply uh, people that have, you know, somebody opened a window for us, somebody opened a door, somebody pointed us in a direction, and we want to do the same thing for other people. Uh, just remember that that we're not the source; we're just the guide. We're just a, like a like a tour guide, pointing you in the direction of great things to see and look at. Does that make sense, Brent? Yeah, I would say that we're the doorman. We're not even guiding you in. We're just opening the door. <laughs> That's so great. It's so true. Absolutely. A, a guide is usually very, very well educated, more probably more so than we are here, but we've we've learned some things and can usher you in to maybe find the guide. Maybe Foreman would be a great example of somebody who is a more appropriate guide. We are the doorman. Fantastic. Yeah. And the reason I bring it up is because when I was younger, you know, one of the classic apologetics things that, that you learn is like, oh, there's... 10,000 manuscripts of the Bible or whatever. And that's how we know we can trust it. It's like, okay, great. So then I, I'm reading and I like looking at footnotes. So I'm reading through my Bible and it's like, Oh, you know, Samaritan Pentateuch, Septuagint, Vulgate, Syriac, Masoretic text. I don't know what any of that stuff is, but we sure have a lot of manuscripts, don't we? Yep. Must be true. So I, you know, I probably should have been a little more curious than I was, but I never dug into that. And so my point is like, these manuscripts come from a particular time and the the rabbis were having their conversations at a particular time and all of this like there's there's so much more context we can pull into all of these conversations that i never was exposed to growing up like it it just wasn't part of my conversation at all didn't know it existed 
So we're just trying to like open this up and say, there's a lot going on here and there's been a lot going on for thousands of years and we want to explore that a little bit. So that's the idea behind all of it, I think. Absolutely. You said the word curious, and that's become one of my new favorite words, Brent. I, we, as God's people, ought to be more curious. We have not encouraged and incentivized people in curiosity. We've incentivized people in being know-it-alls and having it all figured out. And, and man, I, I would much rather be curious because there's so much more to learn and not just for knowledge sake, but because it makes me different. So amen to that, Brent. You nailed it and closed us off well. All right. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. That's it for this week, but we'll be back next week with more on Joseph. So thanks for joining us on the Bay One Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.